as uh, I was thinking about tonight's sermon, I uh, thought to myself, well, I could go on in John, but I don't really know what to do with John 7 yet, and, and I figured, it's my last sermon, so it doesn't really matter if I go on to John 7 or not, because I'm not going to finish the book, right? So I just decided that I didn't have to stay with my series, and I'm not going to. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and um, I, I just want to talk tonight about ministry and about... Um, I want to preach, this passage has kind of become my life verse for ministry, if you will. Or just maybe a verse that has been, that I have brought to bear several times on my ministry here and before here and hopefully after here and it will, and hopefully it will bear, come to bear on your life and ministry. Because I think that this has something to say about what ministry is all about and, uh, and who we should be as Christians uh, in the world. So, um, not, uh, not going to go to John. I hope you're not too disappointed. Um, I, uh, I was thinking just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was like right after I had gotten done planning worship services that I was like, I don't know why I speak, O oh Lord, was, uh, I don't know if I heard it or saw it, the music to it somewhere, but I was like, ah, oh, man, we haven't sung that song in a while. It's a good song. I can't, I can't pick it because <laughs> I'm not playing in services anymore. But uh, I, appreciate, uh, I appreciate that song. The one thing that I always think of in, this, in that song that's really weird, you know, come, since we're like pulling on uh, you know, strange uh, associations with things, when the copy of that, I don't know if it's still like that or not. Did you leave the book up here? The copy of that, in the second verse, I remember singing this when we were in South Africa, and it always said trith instead of truth. There was a misspelling in the copy. Yeah, it still does. And I always think of that I always, because I always looked, I looked at it so many times when we were on that trip, and so I'm, every time we sing that verse, I think, let your trith, trith prevail over unbelief. And that is a weird association, I know. But I, I mean, since Jeremy got to give a weird association, I get to give a weird association too. So, um, yeah, that really had nothing to do with anything. So let's uh, pray, and then we'll do something more profitable with our time, all right? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy to us that allows us to be here this evening and for the grace that has called us out of sin and has brought us into your family into the unity of the body of Christ. We thank you that we can be a part of it. Thank you that we can gather together as that body this evening and look into your word. And even as we just sang, we pray that you would speak to us from your word, that we would hear you, and that, uh, that who I am and what I say would not distract from the eternal truth of your word that can change our hearts and lives, that's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Lord, pierce us where we need to be pierced and clean, up, clean us up where we need to be cleaned up based on your word and what it's um, brought to bear on my life. And I pray that you would be glorified in that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, Second Corinthians, as, as I 
look at that book, and I, I kind of preached a series from it several years ago. I remember it was when Pastor took his sabbatical in the summer. Uh, that I, and I was like 2010, was that what year that was? Is that even further ago than that? I'm not sure. But um, it's really about ministry. There's a lot about ministry in this book. And Paul talks about his ministry because he's defending his ministry. Uh, the people in Corinth were there, were, there was a faction of people in Corinth, Corinth that were trying to turn people away from listening to Paul. And Paul was essentially had gotten to the point where he's defending himself to such a degree that in chapters 10 and 11, when he starts defending himself, he says, I'm talking like a madman. I can't believe I'm even talking about these things because I don't think I should have to. And I don't think, and I don't want to, he, he's essentially trying to, you know, toot his own horn in a way. And he's like, I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. But that's how bad it had gotten is that he felt the need that he had to do it. But as Paul does that in 2 Corinthians, the one thing that I think is really cool about 2 Corinthians is how he continually turns it, even though he's talking about who he is and his own ministry and defending himself, he continues to turn it back to Christ over and over and over again. It goes back to Christ, back to Christ, back to Christ. Because, you know, it, it, Paul recognized, uh, and I think maybe a good verse for understanding that is in chapter 3 and verse 5. This is another just tremendous verse. There's, there's a lot of great verses in 2 Corinthians. It's worth your study. But 2 Corinthians 3.5 says, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So you see what he's doing? It's not, it's not, I'm not being confident in myself. It's not who I am as the Apostle Paul that makes me a good minister. It's, who, it's God and his sufficiency working in me. And that's something that Paul does over and over again. Even as he gets to those verses in chapters 10 and 11 where he's like, I'm talking like a madman. Then in chapter 12, uh, some of the probably more familiar verses to you in 2 Corinthians is where he talks about his thorn in the flesh and how... You know, even though he had this amazing vision, God had to humble him with this thorn in the flesh. And he said... This is my, so that you know that my strength is working in your weakness, essentially. And, uh, and so th that's kind of the, the big, broad theme of 2 Corinthians as I see it. And in this section of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 3, he's he begins talking about being a minister of the new covenant and how he has this great ministry in chapter 4 based on that ministry of the new covenant in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And so he his chapter 4 is all about confidence. There's such great confidence in chapter 4 as Paul talks about the fact that even though we're going through these difficult times in our lives and difficult days in ministry and facing so many difficult things, Yet, we recognize that this, we don't lose heart. He, he, after he says that in verse 1 of chapter 4, he goes back and says it again in verse 16. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's... There's a whole sermon there, obviously, and it's very similar to the one I preached last Sunday morning, so just bring that to mind. But such great truth there. Don't lose, we don't lose heart in this ministry. And so then he says, he continues that thought on, not losing heart. Why? Because we have this inner self being renewed and we have this 
he says, even though our earthly home is destroyed, this is 5.1, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly be- dwelling, in, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And so he's, he, is he, is he, as he's talking here, he's continuing this theme that he started in, in chapter 4. We're not going to lose heart. There's something, God's doing something spiritually inside me that's changing me and, and, and renewing me day by day, refreshing me. And, and although I'm longing for that, I know that there's a purpose for all of this. We've been prepared for this very thing by God. And so... In verse 6 again, so we are always of good courage. It's kind of the, the negative side is so we don't lose heart. The positive side, so we're always of good courage. We're going to face these things. We're going to face the difficulties of life, the difficulties of ministry, and we are not going to lose heart. We're going to be of good courage because we know that while we were at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, away from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yet we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so he, he says, there's this, there's this constant tension. We're going to use what we've got here because even though we long to be in heaven and we know that that's a better place, we're going to use what God's given us here. We're not going to get discouraged because we know that no matter what happens on earth, that that good thing is what's waiting for us. And so he's got this eternal perspective to his ministry that helps him through the difficulties that he's talking about. And then as he, as he wraps that up, he says in verse 8, Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what, is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so he, he pulls on this idea of the fact that we're going to have an accounting. So you don't just waste your life. You don't just like say, you know, well, this, this present life isn't what really matters. You know, that, that would be, if you're going to take what I said last week and take it to its extreme, you would say, well, this life doesn't matter then. I can just do whatever I want. And, you know, I can, you know, if it's all just spiritual, if there's a spiritual emphasis to everything, then I just don't worry about anything in this life. Well, that's, that's an extreme that is wrong. It's sinful because then Paul says, you, I mean, you have to make it your aim to please him. You have this goal of pleasing God. And so you know that you're going to stand before him someday and he's going to, you're going to give an account in some way to him whether what you've done in your body is good or evil. And this, this is a judgment. I don't want to get into the whole theology of the judgment seat of Christ. But the fact is that there is some sort of an accounting for a Christian. And that, 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 I'm, that's where I'm going to leave the judgment seat of Christ tonight. There is some sort of accounting for, as a Christian. You have to stand before God in some way accounting for what you've done. And that leads into verse 11 because there's this therefore again. And this is, now we're getting to the main part of where I want to talk. The main focus is verse 14. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So this is his motivation for ministry. I don't want to waste my life. I'm going to try to persuade others about the gospel because I know the fear of the Lord because I'm going to have to stand before him someday. I'm going to have to give an accounting. But what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, 
but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Here's, as Paul thinks about the judgment seat of Christ, he's motivated to persuade others to believe, but he's also recognized that he's not trying to please people. It's not about people pleasing for Paul. He says, you know, I'm not commending myself to you again. I'm just trying to tell you about what God is doing and and how God motivates me. And and, and ultimately, that's what he's trying to say here. I feel like as as you look at chapter 5, when Paul gets to verse 14, what he's trying to say is, my ministry is controlled by God. Specifically, the love of Christ. And, and, and that there's this divine control on his ministry. So the decisions I make are, are made because of the love of Christ, are made in light of the love of Christ. The things that I say are, ma- are said in light of the love of Christ. The, the ministry that I do, whatever ministry it is, is done in light of the love of Christ. Not really whether or not anybody sees me or whether or not anybody likes it or whether or not it pleases people, but, that, but for the love of Christ. The love of Christ is brought to bear on the ministry that Paul wants to have. And I, I, mean, I wish I could say that, I had a, that my motives were always that pure in ministry, but this is my goal. This is, this is I think, the, the apex of ministry, is to have everything controlled by the love of Christ. And I think, that's what, I think that's what Paul calls us to here, is to have our ministry, and ultimately then I think that means our lives, because I think our lives should be ministry as Christians. But ultimately, your life and your ministry ought to be controlled by the love of Christ. That's what he's calling you to do. Now, let, let, let me, let's clarify something here. The love of Christ. That could mean two different things. It could mean the love that... Christ has for us. So it's Christ's love for us. Or it could mean my love of Christ. Right? I mean, in English, as you look at that phrase, love of Christ, it could be interpreted both ways. So the question that interpreters try to establish is, which is it? Well, I think in the context, the way that makes the most sense to understand this is Christ's love for us. And I think that that scene based on what he says in the verses that follow it. Because he says, and he died for all. Notice how he ties it very quickly to the death of Jesus Christ. So this love of Christ is connected to his death. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, it's all connected to the gospel. And when you connect it to the gospel, it can't really be my love for for Christ. I mean, obviously there is a love that I have for Christ and it's connected to the gospel, but I mean, that isn't where it all starts. It all starts in the love that Christ has for us and his willingness to give his life 
for us, right? In God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, right? This is what love is, is the gospel. And so, as I look at this, it seems to be saying that Paul's ministry was controlled by Christ's love for him. He, everything that Paul did and said, every decision that he made, every ministry that he performed, he tried to bring the love of Christ for him, Christ's love for him in the gospel to bear on that. And I think that in the verses that follow verse 14, he explains for us what that looks like or, and, and like why Essentially, he, he thought that way. Why that's so important? What is it about that ministry that has the love of Christ brought to bear on it? And I don't, I don't really remember the first time that I read 2 Corinthians 5.14. I, I, I do remember that there was one time that I was traveling for Pillsbury when I had the verse posted on the window of the van. Like, I, I wrote it out on... Uh, on a piece of paper and just taped it to the window of the van so that I'd remember why I was in that van. Because sometimes it was hard when you're in a 15-passenger van all summer to remember those things. I think it actually may have been a talk that our leader, um, Mr. Daryl Bevis, had given to us one night or one afternoon before we ministered I think he, it was probably about halfway through the summer and he was asking, why in the world are we here? And I think he brought this verse out and showed it to us. To, and, and I think this is a good thing for us to do sometimes. Why are you here? Why, do you, why should you sign up for the church cleaning list? Why should you teach a Sunday school class? Why should you make disciples in any way? Why should you do anything that you do? Especially here at Trinity Baptist Church. And I think it's that it's because you ought to be controlled by Christ's love for you. That you ought to be controlled by the fact that Christ loved you enough to give his life for you. And, and that's what Paul brings out then. Notice, I, 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 there's like three things here that, uh, that to me kind of explain why this why ministry should be controlled by Christ's love for us. First of all, is because Christ died and therefore we should not live for ourselves. That's what he says in verses 14 and 15, right? He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So, if one died for all, there's this sense in which all were dying. I think that's essentially the idea here of what he's trying to say, that all died, or all were dead. All, there's just a lot of death. And so, he says if, if somebody died for all, then it means that everybody was essentially dead. I mean, and I think that there's, there's a sense in which what he's saying here is that because our death is sure... It's, it's expected for all of us that we're going to die. That he's just speaking with that kind of surety. All died. We're just walking 
dead people, essentially. I mean, it's just a matter of time. We're all terminal, you know, all of that. And, and so he, he says that one had to die for all indicates that everybody was dying. But he died for all so that those who live don't live for themselves anymore, but for, for him who for their sake died and was raised. So when he died, he died to redeem people so that they wouldn't live their lives their way anymore, but they would die to themselves and live for Christ. It, this fits in well with what Pastor said this morning from Matthew chapter 10. That's what taking up your cross means. I, I know this is because, I've, I've heard this from several different places. Um, over the past few years, but it's something that I think is important for us to, to grasp about the phrase, taking up our cross. It's not just, you know, my burden to bear. You know, for, you know, let's think of, uh, you know, we use that phrase all the time, right? You know, I'm, I don't know, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that, uh, that, we, that we use it for, that, that we say, you know, that's my burden to bear, my cross to bear. You know, it's just like some difficulty that we have to put up with in our lives. You know, whatever. It could be, you know, I, I hurt my leg at some point in my life, and so I have to walk with a limp, and that's just my cross to bear. That's not what, that, that's not what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross. He doesn't mean, you know, live with your limp. It, it, the cross is an execution tool. It was how they killed criminals. People in the first century didn't hang crosses in their buildings. Because it was like hanging an electric chair in your building. I mean, that's the best we could probably come up with to try to think about a cross as they would have thought about it in the culture. And so it doesn't mean bear your burden. It means die to yourself. It means you die. You're walking to your death when you're carrying your cross. And so when he's, that's, that's essentially the idea of what he's saying here too, that, you, that Christ died for all so that you won't live for yourself anymore. And now think about how that would affect ministry. That you don't, that you no longer live for yourself. Boy, that, that changes everything, Right? I mean, again, you know, coming back to what Pastor was saying this morning, that you have to have a different, if you're not living for yourself anymore, you have to have a different attitude about church, a different attitude about um, what you do at church. You know, there's no, I sign up for the church cleaning list because I have to. No. No, it's because I don't live for myself anymore. And I guess that's, this is what people who, don't live for themselves, do. Because it needs to be done. Because we're the body of Christ. You know, I, I, I come to church on Sunday nights because I, I don't really have a choice in the matter. Now, I know it sounds then like I have to. And, and it is like that. It's like this obligation and yet not obligation at the same time that, that we choose to, to no longer live for ourselves. I don't do what I want to do. I do what Christ wants me to do. My life is now Christ's. Because he loved me so much. The love of Christ controls me. Christ's love, shown in the cross, now comes to bear on me. And it's like, wait, I, I guess 
I guess I don't get to make this choice. I guess it's Christ's. He gets to make the rules. In verse 16, then he goes on, From now on, therefore, we, reg- we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So here's the second principle or reason, if you will, for why Paul is controlled by the love of Christ. It's because he's a new creation. He's a different person. Just like Christ rose from the dead, a new person. He, that, that's what he's talking about when he says, once, he's like, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh anymore. It doesn't really matter what your social standing is, is what he's saying. Uh, it went, and think about, you know, the body of Christ, especially in Paul's day, was so diverse, at, at least as far as Gentiles and Jews coming together, that it made for uh, a very, uh, it could make for some difficult ethnic tensions in the church. And, and I think especially the church in Corinth, which as I understand it, at least I think as best as we can understand, how the, the first century culture of Corinth was probably a melting pot of sorts, of, of all kinds of people. Because Corinth was a, a shipping port, and a main shipping port at that. And so when you've got people coming from all over the world to a city, you can understand how the, the population would quickly become very diverse. And I, and I believe that that probably is reflected in the, in the church at Corinth. And so, so he's like, listen, we don't really worry about what the color of your skin is or what your accent is or what your nationality is or anything else about you physically. We don't really regard people according to the flesh. What, the way we think about people is spiritually. How do we think about people? He's like, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, that means we thought about him as a human because he was here on earth as a human being. We once thought about him that way. We don't anymore because he's risen from the dead. He has a different kind of body. He's, glor- he's been glorified. He's been changed. Okay? Christ, when he rose from the dead, rose different than the way that he walked this earth. He wasn't going, I mean, he could have gone through walls and locked doors when he was, because he's God, he could have, but he brought his earthly body to bear on the, the restraints of a normal earthly body, but once he received his glorified body after, after rising a dead, from the dead, was glorified, then, he, I mean, he was, he was different, right? And that's what Paul's point is in 1 Corinthians 15, that that the, the resurrected body, or part of his point, is the resurrection body is different from the, the non-resurrected body. And so, as he says that then here, he, he says, therefore, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you're changed too. You're a new creation. Something's changed about you. So, you, again, I, it, this is all really closely connected. You know, I, he died for me so that I don't, so I will die to living for myself. I no longer live for myself, but live for him who loved me and gave his life for me. And then that, I'm also a new creation. I'm someone different because I'm in Christ who's someone different. He's no longer fleshly in the same sense that he was. He has a glorified body. Well, essentially that should be, be becoming true of me as I walk this earth, that, that I should be changed to be more and more and more like the glorified Christ. I should look more and more like a citizen of heaven every day because 
I'm in Christ. And Christ is the citizen of heaven. And he's the king of heaven. And so he, he is, the, the, the fact that we are a new creation, he explains that in the second half of verse 17. The old has passed away, the new has come. So you're a different person. Don't act like your old person. What's changing about you? What's different about you? What's different in your attitude toward ministry? What's different in your attitude toward life? Does, is the love of Christ being brought to bear on anything that you do? Or do you just kind of do whatever? You know? I mean, let's not push ourselves too, let's not push ourselves too hard. I mean, you know, we don't want to be thought about it like, I mean, you know, I mean, Christians in America, the people are starting to kind of, you know, roll their eyes a little bit. We're starting to kind of get those, those, uh, you know, people aren't liking us as much anymore. So, you know, let's not push it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I just thought of this the other day. That in our culture, in American culture, as we think about who we are in the culture, how many Christians or people that claim to be Christians that you know are, are always looking for ways that they can be different from the culture? Or how many ways are we looking, or in what ways are we looking for ways to kind of assimilate ourselves into the culture? Yeah, and I feel like we're always trying to excuse it in some way. It's like, like drinking, drinking alcohol has become such a big deal for Christians. I mean, I'm seeing more and more of my friends on Facebook that I think, I mean, they at least had a Christian testimony at one point. And I, I assume they still do. I don't really know very many of my friends on Facebook. But when I go on Facebook, it seems like every, like, I have so many friends that, are, I mean, they're constantly talking about drinking. And it's not like, just, it's not like getting drunk drinking. It's just social drinking, but it's like, you know, wine and, and it just constant, that kind of thing. And again, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to create a legalism here. Okay? Don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you that if you're drinking wine as a Christian that you're, that you're unsaved or that, you know, you're, you're in sin. You could be, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not making a rule here. I just want to think about this. Why is it that we're so intent on trying to assimilate this into our culture as Christians. Why do we want to be so much like the world in that? You know, well, you know, they might think we're weird if we don't drink alcohol. Because it's just so much a part of American culture, right? So we just have to assimilate ourselves to the culture. That's what we use. We use the, you know, I want to be all men to, or all things to all men idea. I don't think that's necessarily what Paul is talking about when he says, I'll be all things to all men, that I need to try to ad adapt myself completely to the culture so that I look completely like everybody else. Think about our entertainment choices. And I know that the movie theater restriction that fundamentalists preached in you know, the early 1900s is insane now. Okay? I get that. I mean, you can go to any movie, you know, you go to family video and rent a video anytime you want. You can also watch any movie you want online, streamed pretty much anytime you want. So there's, 
I mean, you can say, oh, I won't go to movies and watch them all day long in your house. And, you know, you're a complete hypocrite. Okay? So it's not going to the movie theater that's the problem here. But it is, I mean, think about how much of this we're bombarding ourselves with. Think about it. We are just so assimilated to the culture around us that we don't even, it's so hard to tell the difference, isn't it? And, and the worst part is, is that we always talk about how, how much more secular our culture is getting. Man, our culture is getting so much worse, and our culture is getting so much more secular, and so much more anti-Christian, and all of this. And then we look around, and I'm like, well, shouldn't we be standing out more then? Shouldn't we look a little bit different? Well, we are new creations. And this is bringing the love of Christ to bear on our decisions, on the things that you do in your life. Are you living for yourself as an old creation? Just absorbing all the old things and trying to make excuses for why it's okay for you to do whatever you want? Or are you just, this is the question that we all have to ask ourselves, am I willing to give up something for the cause of Christ? Because as I understand the gospel, Christ was willing to give up quite a bit for you. Are you willing to give up something? Are you willing to give up watching five movies a week? Maybe just cut it down to one? I mean, maybe, maybe less TV? Maybe fewer sporting events? Maybe less enamored with the culture in general? Do we have to wear the same clothes that everybody else is wearing? Do we have to look exactly the same? Do we have to sound exactly the same? Do we have to be up on every single new music group that comes out and know, ev- know, the, st- know the plot of every new movie? Do we have to? Or could I give something up for the cause of Christ? The one who gave himself for me. Could I no longer live for myself? But for him who loved me and gave himself for me? Could I look like a new creation? Could I look like somebody who's been changed? That's the question. The question we have to ask ourselves. Are the things in your life that you are, that you're, that you are choosing to hang on to because you just like it? You know, you're just not quite sure... Yeah, this is probably on the fence. I'm not sure if this is a good thing for me to do or not. Give it up. Give it up for Christ. Act like a new creation. And, and the next thing that he emphasizes as he goes through this is, is, is tied very closely to that. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. I thought this would be short. So much for short. It never is, is it? All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is Christ that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God verse 21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God See, it ends with righteousness. You see, this, I look at this, it kind of almost seems like steps, right? 
He's like, first of all, you recognize that Christ died for you, and that means you can't live for yourself anymore. You live for him who loved you and gave himself for you. And that, that gives evidence of a new creation. And the closer, the, the newer the creation gets, the more righteous you are. See, the, the, the righteousness, I, you know, this is, I think verse 21 is, it's pointing, it, it has justification and sanctification implications. I mean, I think verse 21 is a great verse talking about our justification. This is why Christ died, to make you righteous. But it wasn't just, it's not just the point in time declaration. It's not the, it's not the, imputation, the imputation of righteousness that he's talking about only here. It's not just your salvation decision, the moment you got saved and God says, all right, Rory Martin, he's righteous. I declare him righteous, judiciously righteous before me. It's, it has been stated and it's true. I think it also has this sanctification aspect, where the process by which we're actually becoming more righteous. That's what a Christian does, continually becoming a new creation. I think there's a sanctification aspect of this here. That he didn't just... He made him to be sin for you so that you might be made through not only a declaration, but also through the process of sanctification, the righteousness of God in him. You see, the end of, the, the end of it all is your righteousness. That you would look righteous. This is what the love of Christ controlling us looks like. May we... May Trinity Baptist Church ever be controlled by the love of Christ. Ever be controlled by the love of Christ. And I'm not saying the church, okay? You're the church. So may you ever be controlled by the love of Christ. And may I, wherever ministry takes me in the future, may I ever be controlled by the love of Christ. You can't live for yourself. You're a new creation, created for righteousness. There's, there's a trajectory there. We need to see it in our lives. We need to be different. We need to stop making excuses for when we're not.